Woo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Freaking Tuesday. But I got to be honest, it wasn't per- purely happy for me until just recently. Because as we were warming up for the podcast, we like to warm up our vocal cords, talk about some of the studies just on background that we're going to get to. Uh, you were wearing a big puffy coat, and I was really, really disappointed. This is our naked time together on Tuesdays, Megan. Not during warm up, though. I'm very <laughs> particular about warm up. It's almost like warming up for me for a track workout yeah. where I need to wear all the clothes. And then as we get closer and closer, start stripping down incrementally. Oh. And then when the big dance is ready to happen, just unleash <laughs> and be ready for it. Go full Nelly style and unleash it all. It's like strip poker, but for running really, really fast. That's a great lesson for everyone. Always overdress just slightly, at least on your warm up, because the process of taking off clothes is the most liberating thing in the world. It's like my VO2 max goes up 10 points as I strip down to my tidy waist. It's incredible. I feel like for me, especially pants, like yeah. if I wear pants oh. over shorts and then I strip them down pre-race, pre-workout, I'm like, it's go time. Like something about that just like fires up the neurons in my brain <laughs> and it's like, bing, 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 send it time. That's what we need. We need a control study on pants versus no pants warmups. I think that would be freaking game changing. In fact, I used to do it with tights and that is a full other level of liberation. When you take off tights, everything needs to flow. It is truly fantastic. It's like you're getting pure oxygenation into your undercarriage. See, I have the opposite approach. Maybe this is like a gender thing, maybe not. But for me, I get much more relief taking off pants than tights. Because with tights, I'm already like feeling flotastic. I'm feeling like things are like moving and grooving. I often wear tights in the winter anyways to work out. So there's something about tights that's like a little better for me. Oh, I mean, that's my problem. I just don't like tights for running really fast. And so maybe this is specifically for me, or maybe a lot of men feel the same. I don't know. Whenever I wear tights, one, I feel a bit vulnerable to attack by uh, lions uh, out on the prairie. Uh, but two, I just don't feel a little bit constrained. Like, I, I feel like there's some resistance in tights. You, I mean, there probably isn't. But I don't know. For me, it feels like someone that's very, very weak is tugging at my knees. I feel like that sometimes. But I'm thinking as we're sitting here that we need to design a podcast a podcast pant. Oh. So for the pants, I'm thinking the like basketball button pants where when you're getting ready to warm up, you just like you do this like arm motion. Yeah. The buttons fall off and it goes snaps stop, 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 stop. And then you're in shorts (laughs) and you're ready to go. It reminds me of that movie, The Full Monty, which is about a bunch of guys stripping. And so, or actually even better, Magic Mike, one of the greatest movies ever. And what you need to do is actually just rip them off in one fell swoop where all the buttons just come undone. And you're like, that would be the ultimate power move before your track workout. Oh my God. Can you imagine showing up to the start line and just pants off? I could be in a Nelly music video with like a baggy baggy sweatshirt and those those basketball pants yeah. and then it's just gonna be like take off all your clothes and I'm gonna be like taking off the sweatshirt and then ripping off the pants <laughs> and doing it doing it ready to fly well it's getting so hot in here because you are currently just in your bra thank god this was gonna be such a sad Tuesday until you did that so we are fully loose lubed up ready to go and uh we want to start by thanking you for listening to the podcast no matter how you got here it's grown a huge amount it's incredibly cool what's happened in the last like few months in particular I don't know why do you have any theories? Do you have any ideas? I have no clue. I think it's people sharing it with their friends. Uh-huh. So we often get emails like, oh, I heard this from my friend. I heard it from yeah, my yeah. sister. I heard it from a parent. I heard it from a parent is a little concerning one. <laughs> uh, but it's neat to see kind of how people are passing that along. So let's share it. I feel like this is, it's really helping grow our podcast. And this is a date between us yeah. on Tuesday morning and we're reaching more people, which is simultaneously awesome and a little scary at the same time. Yeah, it's super scary. I We have, we had a number of people actually reach out recently that said they've gone back and binged. So I'm sure that some of the people that are listening right now have done that, listening to all 94 or whatever episodes 
at once, like within a few weeks, which to me strikes me as like the most stressful endeavor that's ever been underwent. Also, they'll probably be really aware that we're starting to retell some stories and uh, rehash things and also change our mind on topics without addressing it. Um, so yeah, if you've been out there binging this podcast, uh, perhaps talk to a psychologist as well as uh, listening to us. That might help. We should really do an RCT where we have a group of listeners. Wait, wait, RCT? A randomized control trial. Okay. Yes, <laughs> where we have a group of listeners that are listening to the SWAT podcast and then a group of listeners that are listening to the NPR podcast. Uh-huh. And we can see if their tone of, if their like cadence of talking increases over time. Yeah. How interesting would that be? Because we do talk a little fast. So sorry for people out there. But on Spotify or other platforms, you can actually turn us down to 0.8 speed yes. if you so choose. I recognize, like if I had to listen to a podcast in Spanish, I would need to listen on 0.5 speed, let alone yeah. listening to us uh, if you are from another country, you're speaking another language. So definitely an option there. I'm still team 1.5 speed. It's like, just oh, me throw too. it all in. Yeah, yeah. It's, throw it all in there. You sound a lot smarter on 1.5 speed. Yeah. I stand by that. But actually, I received an email from a top cardiologist who wanted to help me with my heart, which was amazing. But he also is a podcast listener. Yeah. And I was going through his credentials in and he is a boss, like full scale boss. I was going through his credentials. I was going through his publications. And I had a moment where I was like, this guy listens to our podcast. <laughs> and it was equally awesome and equally horrifying because yeah. I was like, it was almost kind of like being on Strava and having Jim Walmsley give you a kudos. Because I was like, <laughs> we must run fast the rest of this year. That's exactly how it felt. It is really intimidating to think about how smart our audience is. And we're often touching on topics that are in their direct area of expertise. And, um, yeah, probably not always hitting it out of the park, but I think usually we do pretty well. I, the the cardiologist seemed like he was really into it, right? Yeah, I was. I was like, it made me very scared, but also excited at the same time. And he's helping me with my heart. Like podcast listeners are the best. Yeah, we have learned. First of all, we get all kinds of nice emails from people, but we've also learned a ton too. So if we do happen to botch something in your area of expertise, let us know because it's incredibly instructive <laughs> and helpful for learning. David may or may not tell me because yeah. he receives the feedback and kind of filters it before telling me, but David, you must continue <laughs> to tell me. Yeah. For, for a behind the scenes look, uh, once we got a, uh, a, a piece of, I would say pure hate mail, not, not criticism feedback. Um, I don't think I ever shared this with you. Did I, I shared it with a lot of people, but maybe not. <laughs> no, you. I don't think so. so. This is a podcast reveal. Who else did you share it with besides me? I shared it with Zoe. I shared it with Brendan Leonard. <laughs> Semi right. I shared, I shared it with a number of people that would get a kick out of this, but, um, we did a, a, a little bit of a, um, aside on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson talking about climate change. Oh, is this a Joe? Is this a Joe Rogan supporter? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Fuck, okay, okay. Fuck that. <laughs> but no, Joe Rogan's fine. He's I mean, Joe Rogan. Joe he's a comedian. Yeah, he's a comedian. But like, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not taking positions on that. I'm just saying the climate. I, I haven't listened to all his podcasts. I, I don't know. I, I've, I'm sure I'm hearing just like certain things from the media I listen to that are not every sort of story, but I did see the discussion on climate change and listened to 30 minutes of it. And it was infuriating and wrong, um, especially as Antarctica was 70 degrees warmer than normal uh, the other week. Um, but we got someone that was like, you truly have hate in your hearts. Oh, wow. Just making a few jokes. Well, it's I, like, that that billionaire doesn't need need you to go to bat for him. Well, I feel like a, to send us a piece of hate mail, if you start with the idea that climate change is not real, it's like not a great way. Like clearly we're not going to read the rest of the email. Like did yeah. you even, if someone started that email, I would be like, I'm not reading the rest of this. No, I mean, I responded nicely. I, I think it maybe they just heard a part that it was like, they thought I was trying to say through like humor that these people suck and they're unredeemable. It's like, no, I don't know that. I don't know them. I'm not trying to say that. Just trying to say, hey guys, maybe don't fuck with that. Actually, it reminds me of the best, my, well, I mean, semi-rad, one of my favorite creative humans that's ever lived, but uh, my favorite chart he's ever done, which is like in a one, it's like in a 
20,000 way tie for first is uh, it's a bar chart that starts at the beginning and it says climate change isn't real, which is like a period of like 60% of the chart. And then for 30% of the chart, it says, okay, climate change is real, but maybe it's not caused by humans. And that's like, um, and then the last 10% of the chart is a little, little things that say, oops, and then fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think that that's probably the most accurate uh, portrayal of this. We have semi-rad art all around our house. Yes. And we need that one for our office. Like that's, <laughs> that's the kind of like podcast swag we need. Uh, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of a, uh, a, a little depressing... sad. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, we say memento mori, remember that you shall die. Remember that the planet is not doing too great either. Maybe that will put us but in But in some ways it's helpful because I think if you look, if you receive a piece of hate mail like that, yeah. and then you look at that chart, you're like, oh yeah, it provides yeah. the context for processing it. So. Yeah. And also it's just like, I mean, what are we here on earth for if we don't stand up for things that we do believe in? And yeah, the things we believe in might not always be coming from an area of full understanding of every little bit of the topic. But if you need fully understanding of every little bit of the topic to talk about anything, you're never going to use your voice. And that's the, that's I also hope podcast. that we acknowledge that too. Like yeah. we're open enough or like, you know, we've done the research on this, but this is like not our area of expertise. And we say that a lot. Well, climate change is kind of my area. Actually, that's true. I do yeah. have a master's degree yes. in it. Well, I'm not saying it, I'm talking about like the psychology studies. We read yeah, something yeah. like that. We have a lot of sexy science psychology to come, but climate change, 100% your area of expertise. Yes. Yeah. So this might be our sexiest science episode ever, I would say, in terms of like the number of mixed studies we have in different fields. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to say, please subscribe to the podcast. If you don't. We usually save that to, to the end, but that really helps us out. Um, rate and review it as well. Those two things go a long way. Like that's all you have to do basically to support the podcast. But if you can do that, helps other people see it. I think that us mentioning that might be one reason that the podcast is starting to take off. There's weird algorithms working behind the scenes to like elevate certain things at certain times. And I don't know, but the algorithm seems to be in our favor right now. And I like to think there's someone that's a podcast, like a swap pod supporter, yeah. just feeding the algorithms pizza. Like, that's, <laughs> that's what's making this turn. That's, my, that's how I'm convinced. I love it so much. Okay. So we wanted to start on like the substantive stuff with a quote that we heard. Um, and this is from, what, what is this from actually? So I've been doing this research project and we're producing educational videos. And in the process, I've gotten the chance to interview 10 athletes and it's been such a gift. Yeah. I actually love interviewing and it's been fun practice. And I'm like, David, we need to bring some interviews to the SWAT pod. <laughs> so maybe we'll release some bonus episodes. Brandon Leonard. Yeah, right? Zoe. Those would be great interviews. They're That's so fun. Be. They would give us like, we'd, it'd be like a playground, like getting to romp with someone on a playground just yeah. interviewing Brendan Leonard and Zoe. Uh, but I got to interview Amelia Boone. It was great. Yeah. Side note, interviewing is also awesome because you don't really have to prepare. So <laughs> Amelia is a friend. So I just asked her like 10 questions and she gave me beautiful responses. Yeah. And she just like, she did the work for me. It was yeah. amazing. But anyway, so we were listening to this interview this weekend um, as I was editing the videos. And she said some incredible things, including this quote um, from AA that was, you are only as sick as your secrets. And I think we're going to use that to set up this discussion ahead. The idea about like shame thriving in darkness and just how challenging that can be for people, but the, also the power of opening up. Yeah. And we always, we talk about that a lot, but like one of the things that motivated us is we heard that Amelia Ben interview right before we watched the movie Encanto um, on Disney. Absolutely wonderful movie. Totally recommend it. Actually, a number of podcast listeners had recommended it as well, but there's a famous song from it. You don't need to have seen it to, to resonate with this, which was, we don't talk about Bruno. And Bruno in this uh, uh, state is thinking about family secrets, about things that are beneath the surface in this happy family that are causing cracks. And there just wasn't being discussed. And it was like, 
shoot, what a great message from a movie that we actually need to talk about all this stuff, whether it's our families or ourselves. And that's kind of the mission statement I want for the podcast is let's talk about our Brunos. Whatever our Brunos are, let's talk about them as much as possible. You actually use that as a Strava, uh, yeah. as a Strava title yesterday. What was it? I was like, uh, so my Strava said, I feel strongly that we should talk about Bruno. Just like if I was in that family or if I was like the therapist of the family, it's like, Guys, let's sit down. How does Bruno make you feel? Because if we can talk about this, we can get through uh, the house collapsing or whatever's about to happen. It's it's so true. But we've been on a movie streak, as we've been talking about on recent podcasts. And we just made the shift. So we were watching like Dune and Blade Runner. And yeah. we made the shift to watching Encanto and Turning Red. And so we've been on kind of this like this Disney theme. But both Encanto and Turning Red do have the theme of intergenerational trauma and yeah. how, how that just kind of like seeps into and permeates family life and then creates these challenges down the road that aren't even anticipated in some ways. And I thought Turning Red was interesting yeah. because I watched the movie and I was like, oh, this is incredible. Like uh -huh. they bring up a lot of points that I think are important for young kids. But Turning Red in many ways is a reference to menstruation mm -hmm. and a reference to puberty. And that's why it received so much criticism. Something funny. I actually didn't realize that Turning Red was a reference to that until you told me. I'm pretty sure it is. I might be. Oh, I assume. I, this I, isn't, I am not an expert. This is one oh. example. I am not an expert on Turning Red, but that's how I interpret it. Oh, for it. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, that, that, menstruation is a great example of things that people don't talk about. Um, but the, the problem with not talking about this, and, and we bring this up all the time because everyone is carrying the shit and it's so hard and so heavy. And then we see on social media where he, there's like this happy story being told and it creates this like cognitive dissociation in our own brains. So um, here's a quote from Brene Brown that's on the same topic. We love Brene Brown. She's our homegirl. <laughs> if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially secrecy, silence, and judgment. Um, and I love that. Like, you know, shame just grows. It, it metastasizes with secret, with secrecy, silence, and judgment. Also, my scientific brain can get behind Petri dishes. Yeah. And I'm already thinking about like all the different Petri dish analogies, but it actually makes me think recently we've invested in plants for uh -huh. our house, which has been fun. I'm like, I need to grow things, but I've put like so much love and care into them. And some of them are not growing. <laughs> and maybe like, as Brene Brown says, I just need to like stick the plants in the corner and like not water them and not talk to them via yeah. loving things. And maybe they'll grow better. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe they just need some shame and judgment. They do look pretty and bad. Silence and see what happens. It's like, hey, tulips, you're a piece of shit. And the tulips just gonna like they're, go to they're the they're top. They're gonna like flourish. Oh my god, this is so relevant with some of the positive reinforcement. I know, but actually, I think I think the opposite. But yeah. Well, I don't know with plants. Perhaps plants rely on different mechanisms. We need an RCT about plants. We need to. We need to. Like beef up on our photosynthesis. <laughs> we need to talk shit about tools. But I think, okay, but I think the challenge is that there's a lot of secrets and like when you have essentially these secrets and they thrive in shame, it creates these environments yeah. where it's very hard to talk about it. But I also think like getting back to the menstruation topic, it creates these like lack of like areas that have a fundamental lack of knowledge yeah. as well. So in my research life right now, I'm spending a lot of time like helping young athletes talk about menstruation, talk about puberty, talk yeah. about changing bodies. And that's something that's so taboo, but it's baked into the shame and silence and like secrecy component of it where parents are struggling to talk about it with kids. There was yeah. actually an incredible quote. Um, and this was a review from Turning Red. The reviewer said, insanely inappropriate. Please leave the explanation of puberty to us parents and leave the family entertainment to you. Oof. And if we can't even talk about puberty in like the movie world, yeah. how do we even, and like that is considered something that's inappropriate. How are kids ever going to grow up being okay with changing bodies or being okay talking openly about puberty and what's going on? And then how does that apply in the future too? Like, you know, there are a number of athletes listening to this that are dealing with 
um, amenorrhea, you know, they don't get their periods, but most of the time they're not comfortable saying it. No. Right. Yeah. And that's so hard because it's like, this is just a physiological process that you can, we can all make decisions to help change. And the problem is that in that secrecy, the shame almost like wants to sustain itself. So it just keeps uh, the self-perpetuating cycle. So a great example is um, a recent Instagram post where this amazing athlete here in Boulder um, came out. I don't know if we should say it. It was public. So, but she she described her journey in getting her period back, and it's like, oh my god, that one post from her probably saved five lives, if that, maybe more, 50, maybe a hundred, because that was the first time almost I've seen an athlete be like, look, I haven't gotten my period for 11 years. I got it now. This is how I did it. And that's so cool. And she did so, she also did so through the lens of a celebration mindset yeah. too, which I thought was amazing because I think so often when we talk about these, it's like shrouded in like just different language yeah. or language that even incorporates shame. And she did so through a celebration mindset. And I thought that was something that was And it's cool. not just, I mean, obviously, you know, menstrual cycle, um, things like that. I, I mean, basically everything with that involves our private parts in any way is shame cycled, like in terms of, you know, people not talking about how their their bodies, things they don't like about themselves, erectile dysfunction, all these things. But the, we don't need to do that. Like the less, the more we can escape those processes, the better. Um, and so maybe the, the most, like, the one that breaks my heart the most example of this is um, eating disorders. Um, so we've gotten a lot of emails into the podcast when we talk about this topic. Like it really resonates with people. And it, it, but even if you're not dealing with this, I think it's pretty relevant in that when athletes are going through this, they often don't talk about it at all. Um, whether that's because of shame or because of the specific way the eating disorder voice works for them, um, it's just like truly like heartbreaking. Like it's so sad to see because all that needs to happen is, you know, the process of working with a therapist and then also opening up to your support system to like, understand that there doesn't need to be shame. This is not something that you're like, hey, I want to choose this health condition. It's like, no, you have a health condition. Let's work through it together. That's awesome. I think the process too of opening up creates that community of love. Like yeah. I think about like opening up and people just coming in and like wanting to love you yeah. and how powerful that is when you're going through something challenging or you're in the process of recovery. But I also think about opening up too in different ways in terms of the yeah. brain. It's almost like I think every time that I've opened up about a struggle, it's almost taken me, like I've been so locked inside my head on a specific topic that opening up like opens up my brain to different perspectives and worldviews or someone, you know, coming in and like, it just opens up my ideas that like, it, it's not festering in quite the yeah. same way, if that makes sense. And my my brain is like conceptualizing that concept slightly different because of people coming in and sharing their wisdom or sharing their stories or like having that community approach of love. Oh, I, I love that so much. So I've told this story on the podcast before, but for me, it was one of the toughest, like almost shameful moments um, of my athletic life, which is back in 2019, um, I was at the podium on the podium of a national championship race and got drug tested after. And like, the reason I bring this up is that seems like, not a big deal, right? Like, and I, it wasn't a big deal to me at the time. And I sat there, it took me five hours to be able to pee. It was so bad um, because of, of dehydration. But eventually I did. And that whole time I just sat there being like, what if there's contamination, right? Like, I don't care about my athletics, but I do care about like the future of my coaching. Like it would end my life essentially as it was. And that thought festered because I didn't, I just, I told you a little bit, but I also didn't want to burn newbies. You had just had hamstring surgery. Um, and it, it created this situation where I spent like a month in an anxiety ball. Well, even more than that, because it took like three months to get yeah. your results back. And I remember you just like, 
And so the the point being, what got me out of it, what helped long before the results actually came back was I told your mom, um, the amazing Sharon Lily, um, and she gave me this pug stress ball because we just kind (laughs) of, and I still have that pug stress ball and take it with me everywhere I go because it's a reminder that the things that I'm holding in don't need to be held in. And then I told Matt Daniels and I told Drew Holman and I told my, my, my support crew and all of them were just like, David, you're fine. And even if you're not, you're fine. Like even if your vitamin D pill from nature made is contaminated, you're fine. And a result, like that seems ridiculous. But like, I think almost all of our shame when they're put out in the open, it like, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant and it helps you get through it. And so, you know, that for me really helped me get through it. And so it can be any number of things. And I would just say, let's talk about Bruno. Yeah. If you listen to the song, you're going to be talking about Bruno all night long yeah. because it's a Lin-Manuel Miranda song. And I just like, can't stop singing it. It's amazing. It's so good. Uh, same with Surface Pressure, actually. So that's yeah. another song from the movie. And I think I've only heard the song like two or three times, but I already can sing. Like I already can sing. I feel like almost all the lyrics yeah. in my head because it's so catchy. Well, I did a tremor workout yesterday and I listened to surface pressure over and over and over. I probably listened to it 35 times in a row. That's incredible. Did I, did, I'm, I you, I did I'm also like really sad you had headphones on because yeah. I was on a zoom call and I feel like it'd be amazing if they could hear just like surface <laughs> pressure going like in the background over and over and over it's again. And that, that to me right now is my ultimate jam. It's actually like super inspiring. I feel like from a like, athletic competitive motivational standpoint because yeah. of like the cadence of the song and the lyrics too yeah no i totally agree and actually last night before bed i uh you know i turn i always read for a little bit longer than megan i turn over on bed and i'm like hey megan and she was a little awake so it's like i have surface pressure stuck in my head it's gonna be a great night <laughs> that was i that was i was like oh this is not gonna be a good night and you're like oh it's gonna be so good oh it's gonna be so good if i wake up at 11 at 11 p.m and it's like Drip, drip, drip. And it's like, I identify with her so much, even though I have nothing in, in common with her. Um, so yeah, I mean, on eating disorders, if you are going through that, if you're going through anything, know you are not alone, reach out, talk to people. Like, even if it doesn't amount to like a clinical eating disorder, the more you talk, the better. Um, and open yourself up to love too. Yes. I think sometimes when we're going through like deep, deep stuff, it's almost like we're not deserving of love, yeah, yeah. but you are so deserving of love and yeah. give yourself that gift and open yourself up. Like I think in life, the ability to like give and receive is so, so valuable. Yeah, and you're not- the ability to receive love, I think is something that some people struggle with and it's something that can be transformative as yeah. well. And you're not deserving of love in spite of the things that bring you shame. You're deserving of love because of the things that bring you shame. Exactly. That's what yeah. makes you a full rounded human imperfect just as you are. Um, so uh, kind of related to that, this is a sexy science topic uh, on nutrition more generally. And I think eating disorders are complicated because sometimes like if you actually start to see people going through them, they often don't come from places of like performance or anything like that, obviously, because the eating disorder doesn't give a shit about the person. It's much, almost this like self-perpetuating shame cycle. Um, and the what they come from often is like little origin points that could be in control or they could be in even things like nutritional science or some athlete putting their own processes online and things like that. So we want to discuss this new uh, study that was out in nutrients and health. I've actually, just a quick aside, I've even seen them like race photos, yeah. I think can be really triggering for people. So like, if that's, if that's something that you might fall into, like, I think don't go down the yeah, confines of looking at race photos. Even actually we had a listener uh, email recently, wedding dress shopping, mm. I think can be something. And I think it's just about understanding that like, these things can be challenging and talking about that openly yeah. too. And yeah. Like 
you know, eating disorders are like a clinical thing, but way short of that. There's people that, you know, a lot of us are thinking about our bodies in various ways and what we eat in various ways. And just be aware of those thoughts and know that talking about them helps, even if it's not like you need to see a therapist immediately for this specific thing. Um, so th this review study uh, that just came out was on low carbohydrate diets and as it related to men's cortisol and testosterone. Um, very fascinating topic. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis. So essentially they're combining a bunch of studies and looking at the findings across all of the studies to draw a conclusion. Yeah. And this is done in men. I do a lot of research in female athletes. So yeah. That's kind of my thing. But actually it would be challenging to study this. They would have to kind of change the study design because of the impacts of the menstrual cycle on hormones. Yeah. Um, and I thought this was really interesting. So there was 27 studies with 309 participants. Also, not a lot of... So any <laughs> Anytime I've done a systematic, I've looked at like systematic reviews and meta-analysis. Usually if there's 27 studies, there's like 3,000 plus participants. Yeah. So this highlights the idea that in each study, the, there was not big sample sizes. But again, we're, we are seeing some, some strong conclusions. I thought what was interesting about this too was the inclusion criteria to be considered low carbohydrate. And I'm sitting here doing air quotes right now, low carbohydrate. <laughs> so um, it was actually less than 35% carbs. And I think for me, that's actually really interesting yeah. because that means that if someone's doing a, a, a diet that's like 30% carbohydrates, that's still considered low carbohydrate. In this study, yeah. And I think a lot of athletes do have this fear surrounding carbohydrates where that number becomes much, much lower. And I think it ticked my brain off to think about the idea that these processes might start even with like numbers that we don't consider to be exponentially low. Yeah. It's not like the, the things you might read about keto. It's yes, not exactly. anywhere near that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just maybe restricting carbs slightly or thinking that they're not great for you as an athlete because they certainly are, which gets back to the findings of the study. Um, so uh, a few findings, one at, in the first few weeks, cortisol increases at rest and post-exercise. Then after a few weeks, cortisol stabilizes at rest, but still stays high post-exercise. That's the stress hormone. Um, and then perhaps most interesting, high-protein, low-carb diets greatly reduced it. They actually use these words, greatly reduce resting testosterone. Um, that is wild. So in other words, like, you know, we often associate high-protein with high testosterone. It's like, you know, manly man or whatever, or even like strong, you know, athlete in general. Um, but what we're seeing here is carbs might really be driving some of these sex hormones. And this would be much more pronounced, we imagine, in female athletes. And I, I mean, I'm curious about why high protein, low carb specifically um, would be associated here? What, what are your theories? My thought there is, is that those actually might be athletes that are doing even more, like even stronger lower carbohydrate diets, uh, if that yeah, makes yeah. sense, because the high protein is almost in some sense compensating. It's replacing that. It's replacing calories, the, yeah. the, the carbohydrate um, calories and carbohydrate intake. So that would be my theory is that, and that actually to me is even a, a more curious conclusion that there might be a dose response relationship. So yeah. essentially as you get down to lower and lower carbohydrate levels, that the effect that we're seeing on the hormones is more pronounced. Yeah. And basically the moral of the story is carbs are your friend. I mean, fat is your friend, protein is your friend too, but- um, We're all friends. Yeah, we're all friends. It's like a big happy orgy here with our macronutrients, um, but in with athletic greens, our micronutrients. Um, but I think that the, you know, this tendency to read something that might be put online at some point and think that oh, well, that has some applicability to me, can lead people down dark paths without realizing that the science is pretty damn unequivocal, that low carb is not that great. And in fact, like the athlete that described um, overcoming amenorrhea described increasing her carbohydrate intake as the main 
driver, not necessarily even calories. It was carbs for her. So um, a, a question we just got from a listen, from listener A is, is relevant on this that we'll get to the next part of the discussion. I know that you mentioned before a few times that running in a fasted state isn't ideal for women. What are your thoughts on a deeper level and as a marathoner? And this gets into carbohydrate intake for women more generally. And our thoughts are absolutely not. Absolutely all, not. All caps. Um, and it certainly there can be. I know of a few like pro marathoners who have tried this and perhaps that's an N equals one of approach. But I think the challenge with N equals one approaches is that we don't understand like what they're doing across all yeah. of life. We don't even understand like what that low carbohydrate approach looks like. And so I think it becomes very challenging to draw conclusions from N equals one approaches, but largely in the research, it's highly dangerous. Like, yeah. I think the the cost benefit analysis to me just does not add up because the costs, the hormonal costs in terms of estrogen levels, in terms of testosterone levels, um, in terms of impacting amenorrhea can be so high yeah. that it's just not worth it. Yeah. And like amenorrhea has its analogs for men too, you know, and that are all super relevant. And I think probably what matters here with the N equals ones is preset baselines. So let's say testosterone. If a man has a natural testosterone level of 1100, like they're a freak and that yeah, they can probably play around with that and go down to 800 and it's not a huge deal for them performance-wise. If someone's a much more normal 600 and they go down to 300, their performance is going to freaking tank. And um, that's a problem, but that is also a problem for female athletes. So some women have really naturally high set points for some of these variables. So they might be very resistant to changes that happen. This is an extremely rare adaptation that might be chosen for in some of the elite athletes you know. So be very careful looking at an elite athlete and being like, oh, that's relevant to me. Because sometimes there are genetic, uh, almost like reformulations of what a human is that makes it so that they're playing a slightly different scientific game. Also, you don't know what else they're doing. And you know that gets into... You know, we've heard of substances like, um, like ketogenic, uh, what are they called? Oh, keto esters. Oh, keto esters and things like that. That probably changes the game, um, for, for these types of athletes. So, you know, be super careful, basically just eat enough. Always make sure your protein intake is high, but also make sure your carb and fat intake is high. Also carbs are delicious. Yes. It's, it's a, usually the go-to first intervention I try with an athlete who has amenorrhea. And I'm like, this is exciting. Like bread, like think about like fun carbs yeah. too. And it really does make it. Or difference. has a problem with sex drive, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, like I always want to bring this up. It's like, you have a lot of signals in your life that aren't just running a fast, a fast time. Like that is subject to a lot of different, um, you know, inputs and outputs and other things. But like for a guy, your erections are assigned to you for a woman, your sex drive and change from baseline is assigned to you. And those signs go much deeper than your performance level that goes to like living a full and happy life, but also other health variables. So, you know, pay attention to all that, like whatever you think is your normal, especially if you think your sex drive might be low, be like, okay, actually, is it, or should it be? And how can I think about this over time? See, I think with food, we mm -hmm. all bring so much into it, right? That's true. Yeah. And just be aware of where you're getting your influences from. I mean, the science is starting to be pretty clear on a lot of these topics. Um, work with a nutritionist always. Yeah. Also, just make sure you're not constraining yourself with you know, some N equals one story that you read about on Instagram, which as we've discussed with social media, you don't know what the fuck's going on with that anyone that you see on there. That's so true. And I think my summation of this is yeah. uh, when we were first dating, I, I had this phrase that I was using all the time and I have no idea where I came up with this or like yeah. why I was doing this. But whenever I would say goodbye, I would just like walk out the door and put up two peace signs and be like, peace and pasta. And I feel <laughs> like that's the big conclusion of this all. Peace and pasta, eat your carbs. They're delicious. Give yourself a lot of love in the process and walk out the door with peace signs, peace and pasta. <laughs> I love pizza and pasta. Actually, the speaking of pasta, the Bonza. Uh, oh my gosh! Pasta recently is absolutely incredible. It's like a gluten free. Like it is 
we will eat an entire box every single time we cook it, no matter how many meatballs we have. It is the best. It is our ultimate life fuel. It is podcast fueled by Bonza right now. Usually when you make gluten-free pasta, you cook it and you, as you're shredding it, you realize it's just like all one clump. Yeah. It is all merged together into one giant piece of pasta, which I'm actually like, I kind of like that. Yeah. Honestly, I'm like, I could just like bite this as so, if it's one big chunk of pasta, but this actually has pasta strands. It's amazing. Uh, sometimes I've learned that you can only cook it for like four or five minutes because when I've cooked it for the full 10 to 12 or whatever, or, or even trying to keep it al dente, it just becomes this big clump. And Megan will eat it like a lollipop, <laughs> yeah. like just a, um, or actually like a corn dog. It'll just be like a big chunk. She'll put her fork in and she'll just go, this is the best, David. We You're should, such a good cook. We should just put a stick into it and call it called a corn dog corn pasta it's a new corn thing pasta. it's a new new creation peace and corn pasta but i think actually we like cooking it al dente because i have very little patience when i'm cooking yeah. like usually by the time i'm cooking dinner i'm hungry and i'm like really ready for dinner and so cooking pasta for 12 minutes seems like an eternity yeah. for me so it's also convenient that it's sort of often when it comes time for dinner i was just thinking I wouldn't necessarily say I'm hungry. I just want to eat. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. I, I, it, actually, that's a good point of complication here for athletes too, is how weird hunger mechanisms are in relation to athletic energy intakes. Like it's tough. Like everyone is different. So don't think that also when you see like eat when you're hungry, it's like, it is complicated. <laughs> um, you know, and like, I, I know for me, it, it's easy in some ways now because whenever I have stomach pain, I'm like, I still want to eat. Yes. Like I know that I'm like about to die if I don't want to eat, like even with nausea, I'm still like, throw it in my mouth. Um, but a lot of people aren't that way. And so understanding how it interacts with you, really focusing on fun foods. That's where things like when we say pizza, it's not just a joke. It's like, well, kind of everyone loves it. French fries, anything like all that stuff that tastes great. There's a reason your body really likes it. And it, you know, the high energy foods, great for athletics. So delicious. Cheers to pizza. Cheers to pizza. Okay. So moving on a coffee update. You might remember last week that, uh, I was in the midst of stopping drinking coffee at that moment, actually stopping all caffeine. And I was, I was skeptical about whether it would last and it has. I am still without caffeine. I am pretty damn proud of myself. I think you hit a low point right around the time that we recorded the last podcast. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know if I can sustain this. I don't know if I can do this. And then all of a sudden you started rallying. You're yeah. like, I can see the light of the day. Yeah. I got this. I feel so good. And you've, you've built it up. I went through a dark point. I would say that my life status was punk ass bitch for, for a few days there. I don't fight that. Yeah. Did you think I was not? I mean, you being a punk ass bitch is you being like exceedingly kind and nice and yeah. amazing. But it was a little bit different from your like, I don't know. I, yeah. You were you were slightly different. I did wake up in the middle of the night with a headache and I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, that is a negative thing. And interestingly though, I have found that my overall mood, I would say, has improved. Like just stable in a you know sense of stabilized over time. And I was thinking, okay, I think I was Wednesday or Thursday night last week. Like, Megan, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and have coffee. Like, I think it's just time to get going again. There's no reason to do this. I'm meeting you halfway. This isn't for a health thing, or at least it wasn't. Um, and then I wake up the next morning and I look at my whoop and it tells me I'm glorious. And I'm like, fuck, whoop, why are you doing this to me? You're telling me that I don't, I shouldn't have coffee because every day it's looking really good. All of a sudden my sleep scores went to hundred when they're usually, they're like 70. Your whoop was crushing it. And you're like, oh no, this is undeniable. I have to keep this going. But when you said that you were going to like, you, you decided not to keep it going anymore. I think a big reason was because you weren't going. Yeah. Cause you were, you got so frustrated because 
we, I don't know, we have a thing. We wake up in the morning, yeah. we drink coffee, we poop, we go do our exercise, and we continue on the rest of the day. I have always been baffled by people that like poop at all different times yeah. of the day. Because for me, I wake up in the morning, I drink coffee, I poop, I go for my run. And if I have to poop in the afternoon, there is something wrong with my GI system. Like something weird yeah. is going on. Yeah, and no, if I poop in the PM, call a doctor. Like there's something wrong. Like, I mean, because I've cleared out in the AM. But going off coffee did like fundamentally alter that at first and it was really distressing and i still don't feel great about it it's improved but like uh i don't know it's life is much less predictable it feels like you're like someone that's clearing out land old like landmines from 1942 <laughs> that's kind of how i am it's like 4 p.m it's like oh no ding 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 it's like i'm not used to this that being said i feel like you do and both of us do get more excited because it's like a gift now yeah, yeah. before it was a given and now it's like i announce it from the other room yeah. i'm like guess what's <laughs> happening right now you did 6 p.m last night after dinner you're like poopy <laughs> much like a little child um but yeah no i will never ever take another poop for granted i promise you lord i will never take another poop for granted but even with all of this you're still saying that it's worth it oh well, okay. I, okay so the backstory is i'm doing this for my heart as we explained on other podcast episodes it makes my heart feel a lot better you decided to do this in solidarity with me and i was like bless your soul so, i don't know why you're doing this i i shared last week on um Instagram about the my the difference in the whoop scores. So it's really interesting. Um, where my sleep scores, I showed the average week before going off coffee to my week with coffee. It was literally a hundred every day, one day at 98%, whereas before it was like 70 to 80%. And I think that that started to add up and I got more used to it. And a lot of people ask a bunch of different questions. How much were you drinking? All this stuff. I was having a cup to a cup and a half. It was a strong cup to cup and a half, but a lot of people drink a lot more than that and don't have any ill effects. Um, so it was kind of weird. And I was just, I was starting to think, Maybe there is something off with my body um, because I mean, at the elite level of sport, everyone is drinking coffee, right? Oh, Almost coffee is a performance enhancing substance in yeah. many ways for many so, people. Yes. In, in the amazing book, um, Draft Animals, Phil Gaiman said that the first thing he learned when he went to the world tour and competed in Europe was everyone's drinking little espressos, usually two of them right before going biking. And, um, you know, similarly, when we were at the world championships in 2014, I remember who our, our team, one of our team leaders who ended up having the top performance, I think. He literally must have sat there and drank eight of those tiny little It expresses. was horrifying. I would have died. I would have um, died too. So in other words, we're seeing different individual responses. And I think that leads to some very sexy science. But also that being said too, a lot of the science that's been done on coffee, looking at the er what they call the ergogenic or the performance benefits of yeah. coffee are done on people who are tapering their coffee intake. Mm -hmm. And so they're tapering over a two week period of time and then have coffee. I think if you're consistently doing the same coffee every single day, I do think there are some performance, perhaps performance benefits from that depending on the person, depending on their genetics. But I think that effect becomes larger if you're having that tapering approach. Yeah, and that's fascinating to think about because we're about to get into the coolest study, which we just, uh, Megan actually, it was funny. I said, I was like, oh my God, Megan, check this out. I got this study sent to me by the amazing Jenna Bensko, uh, loyal podcast listener, one of the best athletes. We absolutely love her. Um, but she's like, this is really interesting. And so I went down a rabbit hole and then sent it to Megan. And I was like, Megan, this is the coolest thing ever. And she's like, oh yeah, David, I know every word of that study. So I did some consulting for a genetics company. And one of the, the products that we had was the relationship between caffeine metabolism or genetic predictors of caffeine metabolism and performance. Yeah. And so I was responsible for writing that section up. And this was the main driver of that section. And so I read the study like six times. And I was like, <laughs> David, this is one of my favorite studies. And it was a moment where I felt like we both swept, swiped the same direction on our yeah. dating app. And I was like, this is glorious. Yes. It was so sexy. So this is the uh, sexiest shared science study, um, which makes it even extra sexy. Um, and this was a 2018 article in Medicine, Science, and Sports and Exercise that looks at the specific gene that is called... 
uh, CYP1A2. So CYP1A2 is involved in metabolizing caffeine. Um, And so there's what we consider fast metabolizers of caffeine and slow metabolizers of caffeine. And slow metabolizers of caffeine may have more side effects from drinking caffeine and may have less of a performance benefit. Yeah. So on, for example, on 23andMe, when I took it, um, it said that I'm likely to drink a little bit less than the average person, but it still said 239 milligrams a day. Which is a lot. And I didn't think much of that. I was like, okay, well, that's kind of in the middle of the range. It's not that, it's not that extreme, but this study points out some specific mechanisms at play. So this, it took 101 competitive male uh, cyclists and had them do three different cycling time trials that were in randomized order. One with no caffeine, then two milligrams per kilogram of caffeine and four milligrams per kilogram of caffeine. Uh, For, that would be about me having a little bit over a Starbucks cup. Um, at the high end of the range there. Uh, but what was fascinating is that it depended on your genotype in the CYP1A2 gene to determine the outcome. So at four milligrams per kilogram, the AA genotype was 6.8% better on the time trial. That makes sense. That's how I feel I would perform on caffeine. At least that's what I thought. And so AA, for context, are those are considered the fast metabolizers of yeah. caffeine. And so the theory is that they're rapidly metabolizing caffeine. They have less side effects. They have more or what we call ergogenic benefit from the caffeine, and they're performing better. And in contrast, so the CC genotype actually increased time trial um, time by 13.7%. That's, so 13.7% slower. That's really big when you think about that. And yeah. those are the slow metabolizers, so people who have these more side effects from caffeine. And I think that's very interesting. And that was your genotype. So So David is a slow metabolizer. Yeah. I went into um, 23andMe and then you can go through the scientific details and you have to click like a million different places. And then eventually you see your actual like genes. And of course I'm a CC. So what I have perceived is just specific to this genotype. I would say if you you, like are interested and you've done 23andMe, go check the caffeine thing, go through, look at scientific details, see if on the CYP1A2 gene, you are CC. Um, uh, the other ones, it's like Megan is AC, which so I, think- I, I am mixed. So I have one allele that's fast and one that allele that's slow and they call that intermediate metabolism. And I actually am predicted not to have any change in term yeah. in performance from, from, uh, caffeine. And that's kind of how I feel. I do feel neutral, but that being said, I do get a lot of stoke from drinking caffeine. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to figure and out. That's a big confounding variable. My bet is for those intermediates. It would also like during activity, like at hour two of a 50 K it must help, right? Based on your performances, like when you've gone through a lot of caffeine at these races, it probably helps. But interestingly on 23andMe, it reports that as I believe CT rather than AC. So, you know, just be aware that T, T and A are connected, right? I think. Yeah, they're, they're related. Um, but when you, well, what I think is actually interesting though, is there are tons of different pathways that are involved in caffeine metabolism. Um, and so 23andMe actually has these studies that look at other metabolizers of caffeine and they use that to predict how much caffeine you would drink on a daily basis. And so, I think it's also important to recognize that while CYP1A2 has been associated with performance, there yeah. are so many other <laughs> genes. And I think it would be, I think, well, this is something that will like start seeing explode a lot more in genetic research is what are the involvements of those other genes and how do they relate to CYP1A2? Well, you know, Jan Jackson's like, Janet, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. Yours is Megan. Miss disclaimer, if you're nasty. <laughs> Sorry, that was a heck of a disclaimer. <laughs> so much less fun. So nasty. But be aware, actually be aware of this. This is basically all we're saying. Like, I think I stumbled into a realization that may improve my performance greatly upcoming based on these studies, or it might not. It'll be interesting to find out. Um, either way, I have great energy now. And I think a lot of the reason is that I've replaced it with athletic greens. Uh, so a number of people used the the uh, website last week to order athletic greens, which we fully swear by. I posted online um, on, on Instagram again, my whoop data 
from before athletic greens the week before and after. And it's just a fundamental difference from like an average of 62 to an average of 78 on HRV each morning. Um, with that being the only, th- this was before I went off coffee um, and pretty damn fascinating. And I think it is really effective. So um, go to athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Um, there, if you use that unlock offer and subscribe, you get a vitamin D dropper um, and in addition, which is also amazing. I think it's one of the reasons that I might be seeing benefits is because for whatever reason, I've always had terrible stomach issues from vitamin D pills, but this vitamin D dropper has not bothered my stomach at all, which is maybe the most important supplement of all. Well, that's the other cool thing about athletic greens. So one, I think we can see the impacts pretty fast. So people that I've seen that take it see HRV impacts almost immediately. And I think that's something that's cool, but also too, the way the digestive enzymes that they have in there, and then also the formulation of the product, I have not seen an athlete report any GI distress, whereas multivitamins are kind of in this mixed bag. Like some athletes are like, I can't take my multivitamin in the morning. I can't take it in the afternoon. I get GI distress from it. And so it's neat that athletic greens. Well, yeah. yeah. So I used to take nature made 5,000 IU vitamin D and started to have some of the worst experiences ever on a run, not just like having to go to the bathroom, but like the pain associated with it made a big difference. Um, Also, I'm kind of, now that we're sponsored by Athletic Greens, I'm hearing it on every podcast. Me too. It makes me feel a little bit less special. I got to be honest. It kind of makes me feel like her, that movie where like Samantha is interacting with like 8,000 other people. And then she's like actually in love with like 600 of them. And I'm like, that's kind of how I feel. Like when we met with Athletic Greens marketing team, I loved their vibes of this company. And I felt like we were jiving with them on Whoop or like on, on Zoom. And I, I don't know, maybe they're like that with all these other podcasters. I'm like, is this the relationship they're into? They just like us for our sexy listeners. Um, But so athleticgreens.com slash swap, uh, really recommend it. Also don't think there's much of a downside though. Listen to your response. Again, this is not, uh, this is saying just like caffeine probably individually variable based on the different things that are in there. Well, I think what is actually going back to the caffeine point, it's a point where like, take the information, take the information, the like genetic information that you have, any scientific information that you have, whether that's HRV, whether that's 23andMe and do little experiments on yourself. I think those N of one experiments that you can do are some of the most powerful science. And I think just continue to have that curiosity about your own body. And that's why I'm obsessed with whoop. Like there was, there was a period of time where I got a little bit less, more skeptical about whoop because I was like, this is just telling me shit all the time. Uh, not shit, but like, it wasn't great. And I was like, well, why do I need to know shit? And the point is that was a sign that I needed to make interventions that I've started to make. Like whoop is the reason that I'm not, I didn't restart caffeine. And then I figured out these things about, um, maybe my genotype in a more specific way. And it's wild because like the, those simple things can make a huge difference. So join.whoop.com slash swap. SWAP. Um, and then if you use the offer code swap at checkout as well, you get a huge amount off on that. We've had a ton of people use that. Basically everyone loves it. I think the big thing is just to remember it's all for understanding your own personal body and personal body. That's a good way to say that. Um, and those interventions over time. So like I shared that stuff on Instagram and I think people were like fascinated by how it can be useful if you use it in like a semi-controlled manner. Also, I'm really high on Whoop right now because they sent me a VIP performance thong. That was the world's greatest gift I could ever get. Step back, step back, step back. A performance thong. Why is that associated with Whoop? Like, how does that work? Okay, so you can put a sensor. So you put the the like 4.0 sensor in the performance thong and it does its sensing thing down there, which is super cool. The front or the back? The front. I mean, you couldn't put it in the back. Well, I mean, oh, wait, I mean, you could put it on like the string. I don't know how that would work. Yeah. The front front? Like the, like... Well, like you put it like right on your, it's like, it sits like right on your hip crease. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. There's, there's good, there's good blood flow tracking so in there. Kind of to the side. Yeah, not yeah, the exactly. Very, very not, the, not the very front. Uh, but I was excited about this performance thong. I'm usually not a huge thong person, to be honest yeah. with you. Like 
strings are going in weird places. Like I just rather not. And honestly, like with running, I just most shorts have like built in underwear yeah. and that's really more my jam. But wait, this wait. thong is sexy. I don't understand thongs at all from the outside. Maybe I'm sure there are listeners that really do understand, but it looks like to me, structurally, it, it's designed to ride up. Like it's the, it's how it shapes. I right? think so. And I'm like, I don't know why we would design something. Like, why are we putting strings down there? This is weird. Yeah. I'm, I, I guess I'm just fully confused. I wish there was an article on the, the theory of thongs. Like perhaps the sh- there is maybe, I mean, we haven't researched this. We should yes. do next podcast episode. We're going to have thong research. We're going to be well-versed on this. I'm confused. I don't know why. <laughs> My thong research stopped at Cisco in the year 2001. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I, I feel like after, when you wake up, with this thong, you're going to look at your thing. And instead of showing HRV, it's going to tell you whether you have dumps like a truck, 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 <laughs> and thighs like what, what, what? Uh, the th- baby, let me see that thong. Well, I started wearing thongs early on in our relationship yeah. because I wanted to impress you. And then like once we acclimated to each other, I was like, heck with that. I don't need strings anymore. <laughs> my boys, my, my boo loves me for who I am. And we are done with thongs. Basically, once you have sex once, she just is like, <laughs> stop trying. Yeah, but-, but no, I appreciate that too, because I would see it and be like, it doesn't look structurally sound. I don't understand. A major turnoff is lack of structural integrity. But my other question too is, is like, wouldn't you just rather like to see a butt rather than like a butt with a string? I don't know. I'm confused. Uh, sexual attraction is interesting. I, interesting. I do I do prefer no underwear. I mean- We can try it. We can this try might it. Be, this is going to be an RCT. This might be too much info, but I don't think I've worn underwear in five years. It's so overrated. Is it? I think so. I think yeah, it is. I think it's overrated. Yeah. I mean, shorts have built in, like the ones that I wear for running. And yeah. otherwise just- let yourself be free. Be liberated. Let's talk about our Brunos. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, but, okay. Other thing. Do you know what, what is not overrated is bras, sports bras. Yes. They are amazing. I, I do like them. Whoop created this amazing sports bra where you can put the sensor um, like right in the side of the sports bra. And I'm all about it. Like cool. I'm always safety pinning my, my heart rate chest strap to my bra. And I'm like, this is genius. And the bra yeah. is fly as fuck. It looks so good. So sexy. And they nailed it with this product. Also be really curious to see if the accuracy is high in, in I do. Context. I'm actually curious about that. Sometimes I get artifact um, when I think that's a nature of like all race, wrist-based sensors. And I think there would be a lot less artifact when it's not on your wrist. Yeah, no, for full disclosure, I don't really use it. Like, I don't care about what my activity heart rate is on Whoop anymore because for me, it doesn't, it doesn't work for my wrist. I've tried it in every different way during activity, but that's irrelevant to how I use it because I'm really interested in sleep, HRV, um, and other variables that it reports and it's the most accurate at in the in the world. So, you know, there's always going to be uh, downsides. So really focus on how you're using it. And either way, HRV is super cool. And hey, we got to talk about thongs. So that's a good sponsorship in my book. Thong, 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 thong. Um, so awesome. And now I think the the big, like interesting topic that we wanted to talk about is mentorship more generally. This was the topic of the this week's Toronto article. It's going to get into some very sexy, sexy science. Uh, but I wanted to briefly touch on what motivated this idea in the first place, which is last week, you're up here uh, where we record our podcast, which is your office, and you're, I, I don't know what you were doing. All I heard was this high-pitched noise that probably made dogs eight doors <laughs> down, either aroused or horrified. I'm not sure exactly where, how dogs feel about that. We're probably going to get an email about it on Nextdoor. Yes. How, that's how our neighborhood works. <laughs> where was that? Why, why was that person so aroused at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday? But basically, I think what I heard was, this is the best thing I have ever seen. And it was you responding, I think, to one of your mentees, so one of the people you work with. Um, I still don't know what was going on, what was happening there. It was a, To me, it was the, really cool. It was an example of like super positive mentorship. But like 
it must have been something that was pretty game changing in your eyes. It was objectively incredible. So I'm doing some work right now on epigenetics and creating this like epigenetics newsletter and like information that breaks down epigenetics for like someone who doesn't have a background in it. And my research coordinator, Bridget, made so she has a background in art and science, which I think is so cool. Find a research coordinator, uh, people out there that are doing research that has that type of background because she takes ideas and transforms them into literal works of art. (laughs) And what she was showing me was like our ideas of epigenetics transformed into art. And I exclaimed with that. It was like so freaking amazing. But that being said, when I do, you know, I do give a lot of like constructive criticism, but this was beyond amazing. And that was the reaction I had. But it was so cool to me because it was the ultimate example of positive mentorship, right? Like I heard that and I wanted to work for you. Like I wanted to work harder for you. I'm like, I can do that too. Um, and it really made me want Okay, to so I know you can't. No, I can't. <laughs> this art was so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not very good at art, am I? It's pretty bad. I mean, you you have art, like your humor and comedy is an art. Oh. But what she was doing was like art, art. <laughs> yeah, it's like saying, David, your gold medal is in smiles <laughs> rather than performance. Um, but it got it got me thinking about the, pos- the power of positive mentorship more generally. And I, I think one of the problems when we talk about mentors and coaches and things like that is that often we are thinking about people that come from areas that are like highly disciplined, structured environments. So the Russian figure skating coach that we talked about before, or someone like Nick Saban in football or Urban Meyer, God forbid, like that horrible person um, in the NFL. I, I read an article last night on Defector where Urban Meyer, um, he was fired in 13 games with Jacksonville Jaguars, but would essentially tell every single coach they were going to get fired uh, every single week. Um, can and, you imagine that stress? Can you imagine that stress? And of course, he was a great college coach. But the problem is that's because their people are interchangeable parts, right? It doesn't, all you care about is people sit, staying in line and don't care about that individual's growth. Then, of course, you're just trying to create discipline. And that's a different environment. It's kind of like, um, Roman legionnaires, uh, very unrelated, but you know, of course, they would do the most intense, discipline-focused thing because, yeah, you need to have a shield wall and it needs to be set up perfectly. And so they would do. If you've ever heard the term decimation, what decimation refers to is when they would have a lack of discipline for some reason in these legions. Um, they would go one out of every ten person would be killed um, by the other ten, by the other their people, their legions, and then it's called decimating to punish. That's the urban mire of ancient warfare. But the the point being, okay, that might improve discipline in those really terrible settings. But for most things, we were talking about how do you uplift people, get them to perform better over a long period of time, and most importantly, love themselves more and feel better about who they are. And that's a you know huge a huge thing that really really is relevant. Um, I think for every athlete as they go through life. And I think about I think there's a lot of things tied up in this too. Like I think about the inner child. Like I think yeah. about how did those coaching like where did those coaching philosophies evolve from? And clearly there was like some singular point of evolution that then went on to expand. And I think a lot of that gets back to like what we knew and how we grew up as a child. Yeah. And I think we're shifting into this world and society where like different coaching styles are being talked about yeah. and celebrated. But when I was growing up like i i look i think i only had like one coach that had a truly like celebratory positive like like affirmational mindset wow. whereas a lot of the other ones were more like focused on i would say like negative reinforcement yeah. and i think to me that's just really curious yeah and i mean the idea that punishment brings out the best in people is such an antiquated idea especially when you talk about the research that we're going to get into in a minute but your story about high school reminds me so w- when i first joined the football team um i think this is my sophomore year we were horrible um and one of the position coaches was especially mean and he said we were running this running out routes to the sideline which is where you just run up and then run out and then you catch the ball and then you run up field 
and he he criticized after I believe I ran a route and he was like, you shouldn't be able to stop and turn that fast. It means you're not running fast enough. <laughs> and I, I was like, that's, that's weird. Was, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it didn't me. make any sense, but it was just he was just looking to punish for the sake of punishment. Yell the sake of yell. But then the next guy up was uh the super one of the superstars, Trevor Boyd, amazing person, amazing athlete. And I'm not sure if he did this as a joke or very seriously, but the next he ran an outlaw, caught the ball, kept running straight through the hydration station. <laughs> Coolers went flying. <laughs> we had like a trough that just got knocked over, and he just kept going and then ran up. And I was like, hell yeah, uh, that's the best way to respond to someone doing that. Oh, and then a story from this weekend, actually, that was one of the coolest moments ever. Uh, we were driving back down, so we can't really do much right now with Megan's heart, but we went to we went to nature to read. And so we're driving back down um, past the trail, um, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of in the back country. And at the bottom of the trail, as we're going by at 50 miles an hour, um, we see this woman turn around and high five her running partner right after they hit the bottom. And Megan just turns to me and is like, that's the most wholesome, amazing thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It was so idyllic and wholesome and authentic all in one. I And we were driving by, I mean, we're driving by decently fast. You yeah. drive pretty fast down canyons. I'm kind of impressed <laughs> with your driving skills. And this happened in a split second. And it was like mind boggling to see. Also, it was interesting because I feel like I'm in that phase. Well, fortunately, I've, I feel like I've moved beyond this a little bit. But early on in the heart recovery, I would like see people out running and they look so joyous yeah. and happy and amazing. And it like stewed up all those internal thoughts in me where I was like, oh no, that looks so fun. Yeah. But I saw this and like every neuron in my brain exploded with like, wow, yeah. that's authentic and amazing. And the power of just like spreading that love. So the coolest part though, is that podcast listener, Laura Stamp uh, updated her training log that, oh, I was just going through Boulder, did an afternoon run with my friend. And uh, this was uh, what happened. So in other words, this is a podcast listener that we just happened to see. Didn't really, we don't really know each other that much in person. So I didn't, wasn't aware it was her. And then I put two and two together. I'm like, holy shit, Laura, podcast listener, just from her, she's exuding this aura of positivity and joy that makes it so much easier for us to imagine or you to imagine wanting to run again and like being uplifted in that process. How cool is that? Um, so I think it's time to get to the amazing studies on this. So this was motivated by, I saw some tweets from uh, great coach Steve Magnus that was on uh, motivational interventions and in rugby players. So using Megan's amazing PubMed access, we went back and delved into the details of two of the coolest studies I think that have ever been made. I was going to say, if you want PubMed access, marry a student, marry someone that's just going to be a student forever. Yeah. That's like the one gift that you invested in me. You were like, she's going to be a student forever. I'm going to have PubMed access forever. This is going to be yeah. great. Yeah. You got to put a ring on it because of journal access. That's literally it. I don't cook. I don't clean, but I got PubMed access. <laughs> that's that's why you married me. <laughs> I don't cook. I don't clean. Well, let me show you how I got this article on rugby. Uh, so let's get into the first article. The first one is from, they're both from physiology and behavior from 2012. Uh, this took 12 pro male rugby players um, and it uh, their average age was 21.8 and it used three different interventions for these rugby players. Um, the first was watching a clip of successful skill execution with positive coach feedback. The second was cautionary coach feedback, watching an opposing player. And then the third was the player was left alone to self-motivate. Left alone to self-motivate. I feel like <laughs> there's so many internal euphemisms there that I, interesting. Yeah. What, I, would you, what would you do if you were left alone to self-motivate? I definitely made a masturbation joke in the article. In fact, actually, the thing I'm most proud of is that um, the, the average age of the people was 21.8. And in this intervention, they retested the positive feedback and the self-motivation. And I said, oh, man two tests of self-motivation, 
to be 21 again. <laughs> I can't imagine a world where that's possible here at 33. Uh, yet another masturbation joke. Um, so uh, really interesting setup here. And then what they measured is salivary free testosterone and cortisol, pre-intervention and pre-game, plus performance in the game itself. So how did physiology respond? And then how did the players play after positive feedback, negative feedback, and just self-motivating? And the magnitude of these results was so strong that I was looking at this. It's actually like one of the first times that the magnitude was so strong that I was actually a little bit like, skeptical. Yeah. I was like, how is it this strong? This seems like a very- Even like, as fans of the shit, right? Like yeah. even as the people we spouting- We have major confirmation bias yeah. here. And I'm like, that magnitude is high. Yeah, it was, in, it was just wild. So on the positive feedback trial, it increased free testosterone by 12% in both trials. Um, the cautionary feedback trial increased cortisol by 18%. So uh, stress went up and testosterone started to go down. But perhaps most interestingly, performance was significantly higher in the positive feedback trials, um, a, a massive margin on this one to five scale that they tested. And it kind of sh shocked me that like when we're talking about positive reinforcement, I'm always like, oh, well, this is the most fun. This is the longest term. Actually, what we're seeing it's a chemical thing mediated by the nervous system and that has immediate impacts on how you perform. And Wild. The magnitude of that, so 12% increase in free testosterone is akin to like doping, to yeah. be honest with you. So these athletes are doping on positive feedback, essentially. They're like eating pork burritos of nandrolone-induced positive feedback. It's how I'm saying this. Like that is a really big increase. Go to that food truck and get positivity burritos. Oh, that's, that's a damn good order. <laughs> and one thing you pointed out mm -hmm. that I didn't even consider that much is that the rugby context is an interesting place to test this. I think this would actually be the context in which this would be least likely to see the magnitude of these effects. So like you think about the cultural environment of rugby, it's like this very, it almost parallels like American football in many ways yeah. um, in terms of like the level of like, like instilled toughness and just like the overall traits involved with rugby. And AKA I think toxic masculinity, <laughs> not actual toughness. As someone that spent a lot of time in locker rooms, I think that's the appropriate term. But you would think like, to me, this would be like, I think if you applied this like more in track athletes or different, different like sports that have a slightly different cultural environment, I would expect to see like stronger responses. So the fact that we see this in rugby indicates that I think it has pervasive impact across all different sports types is my bet. Yeah. The, the rugby players are like, I've never been loved before. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I bet it, I, speaking of, it relates back to the discipline thing as I was talking about like the Roman legionnaires. I mean, rugby is a highly disciplined sport. True. So you yeah. can see like negative feedback maybe playing a little bit bigger role, whereas running has none of that. And so I think probably purely positive almost, except when feedback like actual criticism is needed to, you know, improve the next time. Actually, one thing that's interesting that I think um, is relevant here is that they're being shown their successes when they do this. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like for me, what I try to focus on with positive feedback is giving people positive feedback, like on the day that they run and let them know that that is freaking awesome, why it's awesome and that sort of thing. Um, so that the positive feedback is actually connected to, you know, real world evid evidence that their, their brain can latch onto. Um, so you're awesome just for being yourself. You're also awesome for doing things beyond uh, like sitting on the couch. And I think providing those examples for that, like allows athletes to couch themselves in why. So when, like whenever I tell an athlete they're amazing, I try to give like tangible examples as to why, because I think it allows the brain, well, they should understand at a baseline that they're yeah. awesome for just being themselves, but also like providing, I think, tangible examples. Well, and I really think it's helpful. relevant, especially because a lot of people think they want criticism, right? Like, yeah, that's like the, the problem. Like a lot of people need the tangible examples more so than others, especially in the start of a coaching relationship, because otherwise they're going to be like, well, tell me I suck. Like, that's what I want. And that's 
probably not the case, like in reality. Well, that's actually an incredible point. And what I was thinking, there should be a follow-up done to the study where they give athletes a survey at the start of the study and ask them like, what is their preferred communication style? And to see actually how that aligns with hormonal response. And my bet is that preferred communication style actually wouldn't align with the strongest hormonal response that they get from communication. So for example, I've had a lot of athletes that come to me and they're like, I thrive off of consistent negative reinforcement. (laughs) And usually I have to have the conversation that like, hey, that's not my jam. Like I am here for constructive criticism. Like I am here to like call people out if needed, but like my baseline function is positive reinforcement in this like positive coaching atmosphere. And usually like I get some pushback, we talk about it, we're good. But I often see that those athletes that come into those statements actually respond the best to positive reinforcement. And it's almost like they maybe like because they haven't had this in like a childhood experience or because they haven't had this or known this or even thought about this for themselves, that they like all of a sudden flourish in this positive thinking, positive mindset atmosphere in a way that they never expected to. That is so wild because I'm thinking through people that have had the same interaction with me. And then later on, like two years later, I'll learn some childhood experience that makes them say that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that inner child is in saying that is being like, hey, I actually do want a metaphorical hug in this process. Um, But the next study might be even cooler. So this was on the post-match recovery and processing, which I think is really interesting because, okay, pre-effort or pre-game, you can set some intentions, you can do some of that. But honestly, it's kind of a fleeting thing. I mean, how long are you getting ready to run? Five or 10 minutes often. Like it's tough to do all this. It gets back to our self-talk discussion. But after activity, you're spending days, hours, days, processing and going through things. So um, this was a really simple study design. This was also 12 participants the day after a rugby match. Um, and they did four different video trials, two with positive feedback, two with negative feedback, both tied to video. Um, and then the next week they measured uh, testosterone and performance. And so long story short here, 36 to 42% increase in free testosterone in the people that got positive feedback tied to their performance when they showed up at the, the facility for their next game. Which is so wild. Was, that magnitude of that, I was like, I was reading that and I was like, am I sure I'm reading this, like the exact, like is, is free testosterone even measured in the same yeah. quantities? Like I was like, surely there has to be a math error here. And there wasn't. But for comparison, um, the negative feedback was negative 3% in one of the trials and 16% increase in the other. So it's not like we're comparing to zero here. Um, so, but also they had much better performances. Their performances were, were significantly higher. Um, that is pretty damn cool. That like after you're you go through something, how you process that will determine your endocrine state. So your nervous system in, in influences your endocrine state. And then the endocrine system, as we know, is the main driver of adaptation. So you could see that if this was running, like the person that does increase their free T would be in a totally different place when it comes to adapting to a hill workout or God forbid, a race where people always want to self-criticize. And it's like, no, let's try to find the good. It's not just because that's more fun. It's because that's what's going to lead to the really great stuff in the future, the unthinkable, you know, that lies beyond the horizon. And I think what's interesting about this is trying to establish the lines of causation. So we start here with like the psychosocial intervention that creates a positive environment. And you can think about like any different number of mechanisms or ways in which that impacts performance. And there was a really interesting 2017 review that looked at um, different articles, and this was in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And what they like what they concluded, which I think is an amazing way to kind of like sum this up, is that so, 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 psychosocial interventions that create a positive environment may be more likely to elicit this hormonal response that is associated with favorable performance outcomes. So in a nutshell, that means that like 
the intervene what we're intervening on are those hormones yeah and exactly as you're talking about with testosterone with cortisol like seeing that massive magnitude of effect it makes sense that we're then seeing that then go on to transform into performance impacts okay quick aside we need to make this a video podcast you just did i did so many different hand motions for the timeline i was like drawing lines of causation with my arms and it was fun over the course of like basically the only workout i've done in four weeks (laughs) three feet far from the left, all the way to the right, from the window to the wall, till the sweat drips down your balls. You were doing hand signals. It was pretty darn impressive. It was, and I am sweating. My sports bra, I'm going to have to like throw off this sports bra after this podcast. Also, sweaty. it would be kind of like erotic to think about us in our, like no clothes here uh, <laughs> recording this, which is really relevant for the next one. So the next study, uh, this isn't an exact topic, but I also think it's relevant and interesting and fun. So we want to bring you fun studies. This was 2012 in the Hormones and Behavior. Um, this also 12 tri- highly trained male athletes. And this took saliva samples before and 15 minutes after seeing a four minute video clip. And those video clips had six different um, tones, states, sad, erotic, aggressive, training and motiva- training motivational, humorous, and a neutral control clip. And then after this, they did a three rep squat maximum. Um, so results really quickly, their testosterone increases from the erotic, aggressive, uh, training motivational, and humor. There was a testosterone drop after the sad video. There was a cortisol increase from the aggressive video. And then performance improvement happened after the erotic, the aggressive, and the training video. And that's interesting because it shows that it's not just as simple as cortisol or as simple as testosterone. So the aggressive video uh, caused a cortisol increase, but it still caused a performance increase. So it might not necessarily be about positivity. It might be more about empowerment. Um, And I I think as you're thinking about this, you don't need to be Ted Lasso for this to work, but I think you do want to focus on empowering emotions for yourself, including erotic ones. Well, I also think too, that you don't have to have like one labeled emotion. Like it's very similar to like being an identity as a human, like emotions aren't just like one thing. Like you can be aggressive and positive at the same time. Or like, I think you should, I almost feel like we should have like three different labels to label these videos to truly convey the nature of what they are. But I have so many questions for the methods of this because they included erotic videos yeah. and I, I actually need to go into more detail into this article to see like were those PG erotic or those PG 13 R XXX like what was the nature of the erotic videos well, as I said- and I think we should design a study that looks at like all the different variations of erotic <laughs> and seeing like how much like how much hormone benefit you get from each variation I don't yeah, know I, as I said in the article if positive reinforcement doesn't work, try pornography. Um, <laughs> actually, that wasn't the answer, but I did say that in the article. I bet I'm going to get some hate mail for that. I one. actually, I tried to edit that out. Did you leave that in? Of course I left that in. <laughs> you think I'm going to leave that out? That's like freaking brilliant if I do say so myself. Can I actually read though? You did have a brilliant conclusion. Um, and I think this is a great way to kind of sum up all of this different discussion surrounding like motivation style and coaching. Yeah. And this is from the Toronto article that's coming out today. And you said, call it last alone. So <laughs> for for listeners out there, I laughed immediately at that, but it's essentially a combo of Ted Lasso and Vanderlone. Yes. Uh, I wasn't sure. Do you think people will get the steroid reference there? I told you to add a little caveat to that because I was like, I get it and this is hilarious, but I don't know, like maybe like 20 to 30% people. I did add that. a parenthetical that said, inject 20 cc of believe directly into your frontal lobe. Oh, perfect. Okay. That, that explains okay? it. Awesome. And then you wrote, believe in your capabilities with evidence to back up that belief. And you have a lot better chance of becoming something that may be unthinkable in the moment. What that means in practice Focus and replay your successes, using your failures for the necessary learning without reading too much into them. Practice positive self-talk, using each run as an opportunity to be your own coach. Remember that your fitness is your best day, and everything else is just an opportunity to learn. Be curious, not judgmental. 
And if your mentors project their insecurities into you by screaming for no good reason or making you feel unworthy for any reason, get new mentors. And I love that last line. <laughs> There's something about that that like is empowering, but I also think it makes you reflect on like mentors you do have in your life and if you need to reevaluate them. Yeah. And I think to take a step back, this isn't about coaching, right? This is about the type of people we are in the context of our lives. And I think that it's so easy to get bogged down in like, you know, I need to play it cool or I need to be the person that is just coming in with the scientific facts. And the point is, yeah, scientific facts matter, but you know what matters even more? Scientific facts backed with positive reinforcement. So these studies show it doesn't matter if you show someone reality and give them feedback based on that. What actually matters is that the reality, the tone of the reality that you're giving someone. And so that doesn't just go for coaching. That goes to the type of people we are in every single interaction we have. Um, like Laura Stamp, she wasn't coaching the girl she was running with out there on the trails. She was just being that person for that athlete in the moment because that's who she's decided to become. And I've seen her behind the scenes and that is truly who she is. And that goes to every single little life decision we make. And like the reason that my life has taken off since I've met you is because you've been that person to me. So you have been that person that squeals so that dogs down the way start like <laughs> humping chairs. Like that is what you've done for me. And I appreciate that so much. And I think it's when you go through this process and perhaps you're like mentoring people along the way, I think it's also understanding too that there's like a human tendency to push back mm -hmm. against that at first. So true. But it's like weathering that storm and just waiting to see that happen. Because I think for many, and perhaps like this is also like, you know, there's certainly a mixed response here. Everyone has different responses to these things. But I think for many, people like if you weather that storm i think the person over time will grow and flourish and appreciate it yeah yeah it's almost like uh the plants we talked about you yeah know? exactly yeah. like um you the at first it might not bloom right in fact it might like be the opposite and then eventually like a, a little sprout comes up and then eventually it becomes a freaking jungle of self-belief that you're helping instill in that other person you're not the causative factor, right? You're just helping unleash what's already inside them. The seed already has that capability, but sometimes people haven't had that, had that seed watered when they were young or even worse, like the seed was like told it's a piece of shit um, by whether parents, you know, other coaches or friends or bullies or any number of different things. And, you know, it can be damn tragic, but the way to flip it is, you know, to just open up those love reserves and pour them on like uh, you pour on water onto our plants, which is probably Actually, why the tulips are dying. I'm thinking right now that I should really just pour athletic greens onto plants <gasps> and see what happens. Oh no, that might be bad though. I mean, I think it would be great. No, no, it's like- We should do it. I mean, we should try it. It's like feeding chicken to a chicken. <laughs> yeah. It's cannibalism of plants. <laughs> That's true. It's probably not appropriate. <laughs> awesome. So uh, on this topic, this might be our last thing. We'll see. Uh, we wanted to talk about an, an erotic slash aggressive story uh, that's really cool. If you're How is this erotic? I think it's erotic if you're really into bikes. Okay. Well, listeners, just you can decide. <laughs> hey, Megan, I've seen how you interact with your Cervelo. You consider this erotic story. Oh, uh, sure. I love, I have, I really, really, really love my Cervelo gravel bike. She's yeah. amazing. She's called, actually, she's called Cookie Monster. I don't know how erotic that term is, but she's great. If you took off the saddle, you wouldn't even need me. <laughs> oh, God, that's gross. Um, so um, this is on Mohorich, Michaeli Mohorich, um, who is a professional cycler, cyclist. Um, so to start, an intro to the Milan-San Remo bike race. So we're, we've become big bike fans over time. Just we, 
we love sports. We Vikings subscribe sports. to GCN, which yeah. is the, the cycling network. And we spend a lot of our life watching uh, cycling stages now. It's great. Yeah, yeah. So if you love cycling and just want to catch up, GCN, really cool. It's like 10 bucks a month. Um, you can watch it on your TV. Um, so Milan San Remo is the longest race of the year. It's the first monument of the year, I believe. It's 180 miles long. Uh, pretty wild. And it only has like 6,000 feet of climbing. So it's not a steep race. It's basically a long, boring race until it isn't long and boring anymore. And everything happens all at once right at the end. Well, it's wild because that's the longest bike race of the year and it's 180 miles is very 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 long but it also made me conceptualize the fact that people run 180 miles yeah. in races too and that made me even a little bit more mind boggled yeah i try not to think about that when i'm coaching for it i actually tell athletes who are racing that distance don't think i mean yeah. think about that when you're signing up and like fully internalize your why but like you don't have to think about that on every training run yeah yes. so as i give myself positive reinforcement for coaching i'm like I specifically do not think about how far 100 miles is. Yes. Because if so, I will start to get so bogged down in my own thoughts and my own self-criticism, my own doubts, that it screws up. And fortunately, now we have so many people that have like, you know, one Western States or um, any other big 100 mile race that I'm like, okay, I know the scientific facts of how this works, but the actual logistical facts of 100 miles, I don't think ever will cease to be truly mind blowing. But let alone 180 miles. Well, also the race context is, I was just having a conversation with an athlete about this. The race context is very different from a training context. Yeah. So if you're going for a like 25 mile run, don't conceptualize running that like four four times more in a hundred mile race because like you're tapered going into a race. You have adrenaline, you have endorphins, you have a whole crew, you have many different foodstuffs available to yeah. you. So I feel like it's a totally different experience. So think about it, but also understand race context is different. <laughs> so true. So um, this race culminates in a climb up the Poggio, which is a gradual climb and then a horrifying descent. So this descent involves tons of switchbacks and they often fall down a cliff on the other end if you take them too wide. And essentially, uh, it's really horrifying. I was listening to the Move podcast by Lance Armstrong, uh, which, you know, obviously Lance is not, doesn't seem like the best person. Um, okay, for but sports. he has a great podcast. Okay, I love his I, podcast. I actually really like listening to Lance talk. I don't know why. I think it's because he has like, so much swag yeah and like he gives i don't know he like really and gives think, no fucks and there's something about that it's like the exact opposite of our aura i hope yeah and well the problem is i think i have to say i don't like lance from like a scientific like from like a people out there truly hate him things i kind of like lance i do kind of like really lance like too. lance yeah. well also well, he was also like my childhood idol in terms of he's the reason i got into endurance sports because he's the after um football I went to biking first because of seeing Lance and that means so much to me. Also, he's funny as shit. He is funny as shit. Also, there's a comedian out there that has a joke that Lance was the first person to dope for charity. So <laughs> there's that too. I mean, he did raise a lot of money for cancer research by injecting himself with all kinds of crazy drugs. So, you know, there are different ways yeah. to look at it. So I'm not apologist for doping, but I actually, and it gets back to it more generally, we are not our actions or our, our mistakes. Uh, you know, I like him. I like Joe Rogan too. I'm just saying all the controversial things. You like Joe Rogan? I mean, intellectually, theoretically. I've I liked his old stand-up. I haven't listened to him recently. Okay. Well, maybe you should listen to him and then come back to <laughs> me with say that, that. statement. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a downside to trying to give everyone positive reinforcement. Yeah, I'm like, dude, we can stop at Lance. Yeah, so like, how does that sound? Well, Lance is not listening to this podcast. Joe Rogan certainly isn't listening to this podcast. And Joe Rogan's listeners are listening to this podcast. They've already sent us hate mail, um, apparently. So um the Poggio, essentially it's like, okay, the steep this little climb that's not steep enough to get away on, and then this descent. Um in Mahorish, that's where he came in. He had this incredible strategy. So for background, he was the first cyclist to use the super tuck, which is that crazy position where you get really low on your bike on the descent where you're sitting on the top or you're, you put your junk on the top tube essentially, <laughs> um, which was banned this year. 
So, um, you know, they're looking for other ways to descend really fast. And that's where the adjustable dropper comes in, they call it. I didn't actually know what this was, believe it or not. He has a remote-controlled dropper post. So that's that a seat like, post that's that wild goes up and down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you control that via remote. It's wild. And so this is a um, very common in mountain biking. Um, and I didn't really get it. Interesting wrinkle is that the UCI, the Universal Cycling Union, requires that whatever they're using be on the market. So they just took a uh, seat post that was on the market for a mountain bike and put it on his road bike. Seems like a good lawyering a- activity there. So you can think about it as you lower the seat post, it gives you more control. Your bike can whip around turns. Also, you can get more aerodynamic because your back gets lower, your head gets lower, much like a super tuck without super tucking, uh, which is now illegal. Um, and so what he did is at the very top of the climb, like 100 yards from the top, he attacks. Um, and he didn't really gain any ground by the summit. But then on the descent, he did an absolutely daredevil descent with a strapper seat post and got away about 10 seconds. And he held that the few hundred like maybe it's a mile or two to the finish. Um, one of the coolest, most ballsy, courageous uh, situation, and not just ballsy, also over easy, <laughs> anything else, uh, situations I've ever seen. And he owned it with swag yeah. too. He actually had this incredible quote after the performance. He said, I destroyed cycling once with a super tuck. Now I've destroyed cycling again. <laughs> now I think everyone will start to use dropper posts. It'll be one more thing to think about on the bike. It'll be like Formula One. There's just the gas and brake pedals. Now they have hundreds of buttons. And I'm like excited by that, but also horrified too, because I feel like I have ETAP, um, which is an electronic yeah. shifting on my bike. And as I know, like whenever you put hundreds of buttons on bikes, they also break <laughs> if you don't have hundreds of skilled mechanics. Yeah. And so I'm very excited for the evolution of cycling, but also I think about the fact that like everything seems to break in biking. <laughs> That's true. It's my least favorite part of biking. Yeah. He has like a hundred team mechanics right with him at all times. That's like true. what would happen if you had it? You know? Well, I have you, so I'm oh. screwed. <laughs> yeah. You are like, we are the world's worst bike mechanics. I it's mean, so true. I think also we just, they're so complicated that we're like, we just kind of like shove things around and generally tend to make it worse. But bike mechanics have gotten, bike mechanic like work has gotten so complicated. That's also my approach to sex. <laughs> shove things around. Hope, hope for the best. Um, yeah. Sorry. The end of the podcast gets a little gets a little wacky. But also talk about testosterone or sex hormones as we're saying like your state. This is where it becomes erotic and aggressive to me. He called his shot before the race. He went up to people and he's like, hey, I have this adjustable dropper. Wait, just wait until the end of this 180 mile race to see what happens. Um, And sure enough, some big ass things happened. Um, Can you imagine what his testosterone levels were? I mean, I imagine they tested him because they they should. I mean, they should test every biker before, after during like every minute of waking day during bike racing season. But I feel like they should go back and look at his testosterone levels post-race and analyze the effect of the the remote controlled dropper post. <laughs> yes, I bet it was through the roof. Um, which brings us, actually, do you want to finish with this study or do you want to go to college basketball? Uh, let's do the study. Okay, okay, perfect. We can do, we can save college basketball for next week. March awesome. Madness will still be going on. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, so this study was a 2016 in Plus One Journal. And this was about how mental fatigue, cognitive fatigue interacts with physical performance. Um, and it's pretty fascinating because it's all related to professional cyclists which probably shows why Mahorich is able to do this after 175 miles of riding. And then for the study design, they recruited recreational riders, and then they also recruited pro riders. They had them do a series of cognitive demanding tasks, which involved the Stroop test. Um, I actually, the Stroop test, I go way back with the Stroop test because it's often used in concussion protocols um, in college. And so I have taken a lot of Stroop tests, but it's essentially where they show you, uh, there's like a word written, so it could be like green, and they color that in red. And you're looking for like, there's 
both congruent and incongruent examples of that. And you have to spot the matches and um, how fast you do that um, is measured. Did you pass the Stroop test when you took it in college? Did you ever fail? Well, actually, I remember. So you take a baseline concussion test. Like uh, everyone coming in their freshman year takes a baseline concussion test. Oh, yeah, I did that test. in college too. And I remember actually actively thinking that I should be a little bit slower on that. Oh, no. Because like <laughs> I was afraid that if I had such strong performance on that, which I was like never going to be able to repeat it. Yeah. And so I, I just kind of was like sitting there like, boom. <laughs> and then I got two concussions in college and I was very thankful for that. Yeah. Well, it's a good lesson about why you don't let athletes make decisions for their health. Why you <laughs> That's make, true. Why it's yes. all about the incentive structures you have in place for athletes rather than like relying on an athlete's like specific focus on that. Um, also, yeah, this, the different color and word thing reminds me that I posted a video of me running up a hill on the treadmill the other day, like complimenting your, your workout design. And uh, I was wearing two different colored shoes and I got dozens of comments from people that were extremely horrified by the fact that I was wearing two different shoes on the treadmill. So maybe that's like a Stroop test uh, in on Instagram. A real world Stroop test. I actually have a lot of questions about, and I, I as I'm talking about this, I need to do research about like the relationships between like OCD and Stroop test. Oh. Because I imagine if people are like wired to be frustrated by those differences, that like the Stroop test would be more cognitively demanding. But I can also see a, a pathway in which like maybe that's actually advantageous. Interesting. So I'm, I have lots of Stroop test questions. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, so for background, uh, I'm going to just put this out there with no no, no uh, explanation. I wear a size 10 on my left foot and a size 9.5 on my right foot now, apparently. Um, I overthink everything. I was going to say, I don't know if that's actually how your feet measure. I feel yeah. like we, should, we need to have like a feet measurement thing around here, but I'm convinced you're just a size 10 on both. <laughs> also, we got a new treadmill uh, to replace our one that was broken down the middle. Um, so Stroop test condition and then a control condition, which was just uh, 10 minutes of non-cognitive demand, and then had them do time trials after. The uh, interesting part is the pro bikers performed better on the Stroop test, so better cognitive scores on that test. And they also had no performance change on the time trials, whereas the recreational bikers performed worse on the Stroop test, the cognitive test that requires endurance, and then worse on the time trial after the Stroop test. So under cognitive demand, uh, it reduced their power output. And so you can think about that as interesting because you would surmise that these professional road cyclists have stronger response to mental fatigue. So they're yeah. able to handle mental fatigue better and their processing at the Stroop test on baseline is better too. And I think that's interesting for a lot of reasons. Yeah. That being said, I have a lot of questions about confounding variables because my one of the questions I have too is, is I think it's probably cognitively easier for professional athletes to put out a lot of power in a workout. So like true. I know that whenever I've been going through like periods of hard training, I feel like the cognitive demand to do each workout out actually becomes lower as I progress through that training block because it's like, oh yeah, I've done this before. Yeah. Whereas like for recreational cyclists, like the cognitive demand to put out a lot of power is probably higher because they're not doing it quite as often. Yeah. And, and so big takeaway here is that a lot of things go into athletic performance, right? Like the things that lets Mihorich be a freak on that descent might have to do with how he performs under cognitive load rather than the dropper post. But everyone's going to think it's the dropper post now. But the, the dropper post just gives them superior like cognitive excitement. Yeah, and swag. And it gets back to how athletes consider any individual N equals one intervention. So, you know, the person on Instagram talking about their nutrition intervention might essentially be like, this gives me confidence, which then makes me feel better. Um, so basically all of it ties into some wild things. Actually, and as we're about to finish up the podcast, Megan is scrolling down past a number of really fascinating topics, one of which is do we believe in God? Uh, so if you're interested in seeing that, I, I was kind of uncertain if people would be. Shoot us an email if you want us to see Actually, us talk about that. Actually, you did an Instagram God. poll and like 75% of people said they wanted it. Yeah, but I still wasn't, I mean, not enough responses said yes. Some said no. Oh, I think that's a very polarizing topic. So. Yeah, some said big no, but we have some interesting thoughts, particularly about hell. I'm, I'm 
really, really troubled by the whole idea of it and how we carry that into the future. Well, we can also carry this into our March Madness conversation next week because I am very troubled by the theories go to hell, Carolina. Like Duke fans use that all the time. And I like personally don't believe in hell, but I'm like, can we stop using this (laughs) phrase? Like something about that makes me deeply uncomfortable, even though like I understand it's fun to have rivals. I still love, I freaking love UNC. And there's a lot, I like don't support a lot of the like cultural stigma supporting Duke basketball, but it's like, I, I don't know. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. If you think for even a second about what a dogmatic version of hell actually is, it's like, this is so wildly immoral. And my worry is, so the reason I'm mentioning this now and briefly, maybe we'll talk about it more in the future, is that if there's anyone listening that grew up in one of those environments, even if you don't necessarily fully ascribe to it now, you might have internalized ideas of right and wrong in heaven and hell that make you essentially think the consequence for bad actions is eternal torment. And that is... Even if only the worst person in the world went to hell, there are philosophers that say that would essentially be the ultimate immorality because it's infinite suffering. And infinity times a suffer suffering is ultimate infinite immorality. So if you're held back by that or if you're worried about that, no, you are awesome. You are loved. You're amazing. And you know, even if you believe in a dogmatic way, you are as well. But don't grab on too much to that. Like you can't make mistakes or you go to that really dark place that lasts forever. And perhaps we'll talk about this like further down the road at 86 minutes into a podcast. Yes, so it's yes, like yes, our yes, true yes. listeners. We're not going to open with this one. Uh, but do you want to do to end this? This has been a really fun discussion. Thank you so much for getting to this point with us. Do you want to go to listener corner? Let's do it. Do you want to read it or should you I? You got it. Okay. Popcorn David. <laughs> this is from, oh, I believe it's listener S. Hi, Roaches. Wanted to send a quick thank you for your positive vibes and openness. I ran my first race in several years this weekend and knew I was in shape for a PR, but my competitive spirit yearned for a goal. Pondering the health journey y'all are undertaking and the way you spread love everywhere you go, I decided to set a PR in gratitude. During the race, I thanked every police officer, volunteer, and aid station uh, worker I possibly could. I remember how privileged I am to be able to run. I celebrated a gorgeous sunrise on a beautiful day. This was a special race, and I appreciate you all for inspiring the goal. I have run this distance faster, but I have never been more grateful doing it. That line, set a PR in gratitude like swirl that around i love that yeah put that on the end of a fork like a coagulated piece of pasta and eat the fuck out of that eat it like a corn dog eat gratitude like a corn dog that's our that's our summary phrase for this. yeah so we absolutely love you all um and we are so appreciative but to end this podcast we're actually going to give a special thing i haven't asked megan if i can do this uh i'm gonna release to your the way you tested the mic today oh, is that sure. okay yeah yeah i feel like it's a it's I actually don't remember what I said, to be perfectly honest yeah. with you, but I think it had some like positive approach mindset that we you can yes. absolutely release to listeners. Especially body positivity as it relates to just having stripped off your clothes for this podcast. Actually, maybe we should do that as a new segment because we test the microphone in 10 second segments before every podcast. And there's we like bat 100% in having ridiculousness in there. <laughs> so we should just start releasing it at the end. So the true listeners that have prevailed through this yes. entire journey get this gift. It is a uh, cause of some cognitive fatigue to get here. And we just throw in at the end a little bit about the immorality of hell to keep people on their toes. Okay, so we absolutely love you all. You love them? Ah, so much. (laughs) Great subscribe review, whatever to do podcast. We seriously love you all. And here is Megan. Woo! I'm a sexy wildebeest. True.